It's great to see you. I hope you're enjoying our service. Are you? It's good stuff. Great to see everybody. Wow, good attendance today. It's a warm weekend, right? We got over the hump, so everything's good, and uh, we got rid of that cold weather, and so we're all kind of settling in for the heat that's coming our way. I, I've got some big news to share with you, and that is that our own Jacob Wookie qualified for the Olympic team uh, for USA Archery. So uh, that's, that's great stuff. Um, his parents, John and Patty, that you may know, were, were in Utah uh, while he was shooting. And boy, it was, uh, yeah, it's just amazing how tough and tense all that is as all these men try to get spots on the Olympic team. And uh, he, he made that through. We were, Pam and I were following very closely on the internet. And then our daughter, Bree, who's married to Jake, was giving us the, the, the frontline text on everything that was going. So exciting stuff. So we'll uh, make sure he's still out of town shooting, uh, but should be back maybe next Sunday. We'll see. But, but great. Uh, just uh, congratulations to him. We're going through the book of James. And the book of James, super practical. And he's basically telling us, that real faith, real Christian faith, it shows up in our lives. That if we're truly believers, it changes our life. It shows up how we live. Real faith does. Real faith works. And we're continually reminded that it's not our doing and it's not our works that gives us faith. We, we can't ever earn our favor with God. Faith, the Christian faith, salvation, is a gift that God gives to us when we admit our sin and we cry out to him for forgiveness based on what Jesus has done for us. But once we have that faith, it changes our lives. We no longer just read the Bible or just learn what it says. We do the Bible. We follow Scripture. It, it'd be like Jake, we just talked about how, you know, how does he make it to the Olympics? This will be his second Olympic team. Two Olympics ago, he shot in London and got a silver medal there. But uh, how does he do that? Well, he shoots a lot of arrows. He doesn't just read about archery, he doesn't just watch archery. He's out there shooting arrows and arrows and arrows. And it's kind of freaky because as his father-in-law, I'm looking at that, and he'll say things like, yeah, I'm going to go out and shoot, and I, I just changed this, or I just changed that. And you're thinking, you're changing stuff now? You know, it, you're, you're, you're competing, you know, next week. It's just he's constantly tweaking his equipment, constantly tweaking something about his shot. But where does all that come from? Because he just shoots arrows and arrows and arrows. One day, right before he left for this shoot in uh, Utah, uh, maybe two days before he left, he had shot 400 arrows that day. That's just a lot of shooting and uh, just, just amazing. And it's the same, that's how we should be as believers, that we're not just reading about Christianity, we're not just watching Christianity, we're not just hearing about Christianity, but we're doing Christianity. We're living it out. That's what James is trying to tell us. And so he, and he keeps saying, don't just hear the word. If you're only hearing the word and you're not doing the word, you're actually deceiving yourself to think that you're a believer. Because as a believer, 
You will demonstrate change in your life. James is telling us that. And he's saying when we come together as church, the Christian community is different than everybody else. Why? Because we put into practice the word of God. Now, none of us do that perfectly. We get that. But we have this desire to follow God out of gratitude of what he's done for us. Not to earn our salvation. Impossible. But out of gratitude that Jesus would die to pay for our sins. I know when I was, uh, I was a Navy brat, so I moved around a lot when I was a kid. And I was just reflecting on this. From K through 5, from kindergarten through fifth grade, I went to six different schools. You know, that, that's moving. And on all, both coasts and the Do- Gulf Coast, all three coasts, and uh, in, in that amount of time. And, and so when you do that, it's easy to feel like an outsider. I remember uh, when I hit junior high, I ended up in, uh, in Roswell, New Mexico, or at middle school, I guess they called that then. And uh, when I was there, I, I, I remember, you know, uh, moving then to uh, Colorado, and again, the new person again, that was when I was eighth grade. And uh, when all that happened, we found another church. And when I was a teenager, and I went to uh, what I would kind of call my home church in Pueblo, Colorado, it might sound odd coming from a pastor, but I, I attended church and I felt a little bit like an outsider. I, I just felt like, hey, I didn't fit in exactly with all these people and they're all a little different than I am. And, you know, I'm not sure I'm as good as any of these people. You know, it's just all that stuff. But they had a great pastor there, great pastoral staff there, great volunteers who all made me feel welcome. And, and I'm so proud to tell you that's how grace is. We get this kind of feedback all the time. People saying, wow, this is a friendly church. And that's exactly how God wants us to be, welcoming. So that people from whatever background would come in and hear about the word of God. And now in this next section, we've just gone through chapter one in the last three weeks. And now we're beginning chapter two. And James is going to talk about the church and favoritism, that that we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't favor one group over another like our culture does. The church is not that way. He wants his church to be extremely inclusive so everyone can hear a very exclusive message that Jesus is the only way. But we, we want everybody included to hear that. Salvation through faith in Jesus alone. So James gives it to us straight here, and he gives us three directives on favoritism, and I want us to just go over that. Are we ready? All right, James chapter two, verse one. He says, my brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. That's how he sort of kicks this off. And when he uses this word, personal favoritism, he's talking about us being partial to some people or another, that we would have a bias, and that is usually connected to external appearances. 
Not always, but a lot of times that's just, we look at somebody and we sort of prejudge them. And whether it's an external factor of rank or race or wealth or whatever it is, a lot of times what was happening in the first century is the same thing that happens today, is people kind of want to network and connect with people who can help them, who they can benefit from. And so because of that, we sort of, in our minds or maybe even subconsciously, it's easy for us to prejudge people as to how much they can benefit us for us to have a connection. And so we kind of zero in on the people that a relationship with them will benefit us and then not so much people who we don't see that in. That's just what we do in our human nature. And God says, hey, we reject that. And we reject it because we have faith in our, how does he say it? Glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We, as Christians, have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What if, what if you came into church next Sunday and you got a little early and there were some seats around you, and then all of a sudden... Um, Clarence Thomas, I don't know if you know Clarence Thomas, but he's like the best Supreme Court judge that we have. Let's say Clarence Thomas comes in and sits down in the seat next to you, and you recognize him. Wow, that's, that's, that's Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court judge. You know? And so you're distracted, right? And let's say you just you stay seated there, and, uh, and then you have a seat on the other side of you, and Denzel Washington comes in, and he sits down. And you're just like, whoa, I know that's Denzel. I see him all the time in movies, you know, and you're so distracted. And you'd be all through the service, you'd probably be kind of doing the side eye, like glancing over, going, you know, what's this guy doing? How's he, how's he reacting to this? What's he dressed in? Well, those are nice shoes. You know, whatever we'll be doing, we'll be, you know, checking things out and we'd be totally distracted. But what if Jesus Christ showed up on the platform in what James says, all of his glory. I mean, and his glory, it just burns our eye sockets out. I mean, he shows up, boom, it's Jesus. All of a sudden, guess what? We're not distracted by anybody we're sitting next to, right? That's the point that James is trying to make. Hey, we have a relationship with our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are not a respecter of persons. We've got a relationship with Christ that changes everything. He says, hey, if you treat the poor as less than your equal, then you don't understand the glory of Jesus. It's an interesting thought that he brings up to open up this subject. And if you really knew Jesus, you would ever, never look down on anybody else. And that's really interesting. We understand that was important for the culture in the first century, but that's important for our culture. First of all, people in our culture, they have this huge problem, and that is people constantly redefine God in their own image. So they don't see the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. What they see is Jesus how they think Jesus ought to be, and that's less than glorious. 
and they sort of dumb Jesus down. They recreate Jesus in their own image so they can feel about, better about themselves. And they miss this. And then it's easy for them to look down on other people because in their mind, Jesus looks down on them too. That's what's going on. Rather than believing what God has revealed about himself in his word. So next thing that happens here is James illustrates favoritism. And now remember in the first century, churches were meeting together. A lot of times they were doing that in Jewish synagogues at the beginning. They're meeting together, but even in the first century, non-believers were in church. Non-believers would hear about Jesus. They would know a little bit about it. They would understand, hey, people here are talking about Jesus, and they would go into the assembly and check it out. Actually, Paul's writing the Corinth church, and he's even mentioning, hey, when these non-believers come in, don't do weird stuff. You know, so he's like, you know, remember that they're, non-believers are here. And so James now throws out a hypothetical situation on just this type of thing, beginning in verse 2. He says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So he throws out this hypothetical situation. He's going, hey, what are you doing? Again, one of the way we show these preferences is just by external outward appearances. It's interesting the words he uses because Fine clothes, literally in the Greek, it's shining garments. And what's happening there is, is back then in the first century, rich people would take gems and stitch them in to their clothing. And so their clothing would just be sparkling. And then it said, with a gold ring. It actually says, gold-fingered, a ring Finger, gold ring finger. And what really, that's a picture of a bunch of rings on each finger. In Rome, this was such a big deal, you could even rent rings to wear for a little while just to kind of show off, which, you know, I guess you wouldn't want anybody to know they were rented, but you would, you would do that. And then on the flip side, a guy, so you have one of these guys coming. On the flip side, you have another guy coming, and he is in dirty clothes. Why is he in dirty clothes? Because poor people typically... In the first century, a lot of people, they just had one change of clothes. That's why the law said, hey, if somebody's giving you their cloak and a pledge, hey, give it back to them at night so they can stay warm. That's all they got. And so these guys, they just have one change of clothes. It kind of reminds me in our country during the Depression, you would see these men wearing suits digging ditches. You know, that's, that's the clothes they had, one set of clothes. Same thing in the first century, one set of clothes. So this would typically... Be dirty clothes because these are the clothes he wore all six days that he was laboring, physical labor, poor guy. And these are the only clothes he has. So now he's in church. And it's like, hey, well, can, can you? And maybe he didn't smell so great. I don't know. Hey, can you stand over there or can you sit down here by my footstool or under my footstool? You know, that's the picture that James is getting us to see. 
And he's condemning treating a rich person better than a poor person. And by the way, before Christianity, this was a new concept. Before Christianity, viewing everybody equally, that was unheard of in the world. It's Christianity that brought that in. The thought that every human had rights, we talk about this human rights all the time, that came out of Christianity. As a matter of fact, there's uh, some scholars have tried to trace back, non-Christian scholars tried to trace back, where did this come from in our society? This idea that everybody is equal, they should have the same equal rights as human beings. And one scholar, as he traced it back, he got back to the Middle Ages where they actually had a court system that involved jurists, and these jurists were predominantly Christian at that time in the Middle Ages, and these jurists kept studying the Bible and specifically honing in that it said people, all people were created in God's image. And, and they were reflecting on this whole, how is everybody in God's image? And it's their reflection on that that gave these jurists this belief that spread to other jurists that, hey, everybody has equal rights. But the point is, however you slice it, it came from Scripture. That's, that's where this whole, whole thing came from. I'll give you an example. The, the great thinker Aristotle, who was alive before Jesus, and everybody admires his intellect, and he's probably smarter than all of us. And he writes and he says, hey, when you go into the marketplace, when you interact with people, it's obvious some people are meant to be slaves. He's just like, hey, it's obvious some people are better than other people. Christianity changed that thinking in most of the world. Our founding fathers believed that all men are created equal, and they wrote that into their most important document at the beginning of our country. Now, it's interesting now, because Europe and America, we no longer base law on Scripture like we used to. And, and, and so we're rejecting God, but we're trying to uphold our culture, rejects God, but wants to un uphold basic universal human rights. And so it's really going to be interesting to see how long that holds up. Without God, how long will you hold up these basic human, basic universal human rights? Because how that plays out in the world is all of a sudden you hold up one group's rights and then you silence everybody else. And so you're always playing with these different groups, emphasizing them, but it's usually to the detriment of other groups and that just keeps on happening. And, and what'll drive you nuts is like today, people in America will pretend that we're no different than China or Iran. And a lot of that's because we have all these money connections with China. So you have rich politicians and rich athletes basically condemning America, but doing all their business in China. And China has a terrible 
record. They abuse human rights all the time. They actively persecute groups of people in China, but we just ignore that and give them a pass. It makes no sense. It's all about money, all politics. It's like, you know, yeah, I don't want to even get onto that. All right, I'm moving on, moving on. <laughs> Leviticus 19.15, almost sucked me in there. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. Check this out. Leviticus, way before Jesus, this is really interesting because I don't think we think this way anymore. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. That's what you don't hear anymore. It's, yeah, of course, we, we, don't, want to be par, we don't want to be partial to the rich, and we have to watch that all the time. But Leviticus is reminding us, yeah, don't be partial to the poor either. So, for example, in our court system, we have rich people who can buy all the best lawyers and make things go the way they want. And, and if they've wronged you in some way, they can basically just drain you through the court system before you ever get to a jury. So rich people have this advantage. On the flip side, if you get to a jury and it's a poor person against a rich person and he has a claim, we know that a lot of times juries are like, well, you know, that wasn't that strong of a claim, but look, this guy's rich and he has all kinds of money and this person's poor and they're hurting. And so this rich guy's not going to really miss this money that we give to this poor person. So we're just going to render this judgment. And God says, that's wrong too. Just judge fairly. That's tough for every culture to do that. God says, don't be partial to either side, but it's our human nature to, that we tend to favor one group over another. And so he goes on, you know, it's whether it's wealth, and, and that's kind of the context here, you know, whether it's race, the Bible's teaching us we are all one blood. Whether it's age, you know, hey, you know, older people going, hey, these young people, you know, what, what's wrong with that generation? Old, and young people going, ah, these guys have nothing to offer over there. Don't do that. Whether it's appearance, I, I think a lot of times in our culture, people are judged by their appearance like that. You know, cliques. Today, we're recognizing graduates, by the way. So next service, we're having our graduates come in. That's, they have, some of them have busy days, so that's the way we did it. And uh, can you, did you ever go back and look at your high school yearbook? You ever do that? You know, it's kind of a blast from the past. And then, I, I don't know if this is true of you, but, but I'll look and I'll see all these different groups of people. You know how high schoolers, I assume they still do it, but back in the day, everybody just kind of grouped themselves. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you know, I was in Southern Colorado, so we had the ropers, you know, the cowboys, you had the low riders, you know, you had the, the smokers. People actually smoked at school, you know, you don't see that anymore. And then you had the druggies, and sometimes that smokers and druggies blended a little bit, you know, but you had, you know, all these different groups of people, you know what I'm saying? And then we grow up and, they, you know, that was kind of crazy. And the other thing is that may, and you have the jocks. It's funny to me because you look back on that and, and you really look in people and they're all so similar. But they sort of have this identity 
and, and it kind of excludes other people. And then we think we're all over that, and we grow up, and now we have politicians pushing identity politics. It's the same thing. Human nature. Human nature. Tribalism, whatever you want to call it. You know, hey, God's saying, in my church, there's no partiality. In my church, there's no favoritism. We're one family. And, and I'm not saying that you can't hang out with friends that, you know, because we, you know, the word clicks, you know, what does that mean? And you know, we don't want to be in cliques that are exclusive of other people. But of course, we tend to hang out more with people who we know best, whoever that is. Not saying, he's not saying you can't do that. What he's saying is if somebody that you don't know best, when you're interacting with them, you treat them with the exact same kindness and respect and care that you do with this person that you've known for 40 years. That's what he's telling us. That we are not respecters of persons. And so he tells us that we need to reject partiality. Next, James is telling us that to, to remember why we should reject favoritism. And first of all, he starts out saying, hey, favoritism, it's inconsistent with the character of God. Let's pick it up in verse 5. Next verse. He said, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? And so here he throws out some rhetorical questions to sort of get people refocused and remember why you know, we, sh we should reject favoritism. And he's explaining how it's inconsistent. First of all, he said, hey, it's inconsistent with God's character. It's inconsistent, for example, because God sort of chooses the poor. What does that mean? Well, I think James is just telling us a fact that we can all see to some extent. It seems in our world, no matter what country you live in, and basically when we're talking about America, we're all rich, you know, according to God's standards. So before we start pointing fingers, but I think what, what God's, and as a matter of fact, through history, Christianity has always thrived the most where people are poorest, and there's the freedom to do that. So James saying, the poor has not, hasn't God chosen the poor? What he's saying there, it's the same thing Jesus said. Hey, it's harder for a rich man to come into the kingdom of God. Because we can see with our own eyes that poor people tend to be a little more receptive to the gospel. Poor people tend to be a little more receptive to the idea that we have sinned against God and we should be judged for our sin by God. And that we can't save ourselves. Poor people get that we can't save ourselves a little bit better than rich people. Because people with more wealth 
tend to feel a little more self-reliant in life in general, but then that bleeds over to the spiritual part of their life, that they think, well, I'm doing pretty good. I don't know that I'm as bad as these other people who are not doing so good. And, and then you get into this prosperity gospel into some churches that are basically saying, which, by the way, Jesus corrected that in the first century with his disciples, but where they're saying, hey, you know, if I'm really following God, God's going to make me rich. God never says that. We'll be rich spiritually. It's not God's intention to make us all rich. It's God's intention to make us all holy. You know, that's what God wants from us. So I think James is just pointing out, it's not saying rich people can't come to Christ. It's just saying, hey, hasn't God chosen the poor? Meaning, hey, with the gospel, this good news, poor people are generally more receptive to that than, than wealthier people. It's inconsistent. Remember Romans 2.11 says, for there is no partiality with God. And then James goes on to say, with these rhetorical questions, he says, hey, favoritism, it's inconsistent with what's happening and he's talking about what's happening in their culture. Aren't rich people the ones who oppress you, drag you into court, blaspheme the name? You know, the rich people, James is saying, they're typically ones sort of fighting against you. And we have that a little bit today where the super rich, because we're all kind of rich, so it's the super rich in our country we're realizing can if they want to, impose their values on other people. And when we see that happening today, and they can impose values that they believe and cancel critics. The weird thing about it is today if I started asking people, I just pointed and say, hey, you know, what, what star, not not Jesus, not spiritual, but just, hey, who would you like to meet? You know, who would you like to have lunch with Wednesday afternoon or whatever? And people would start, you know, naming sports figures or politicians or, or whatever, or actors. But like, just think about sport, you know, we'll get out of politics. Sports figures and actors. A lot of times the people that you're the biggest fan, that Christians are big fans of, are the same people who disparage the name of Christ. And we need to be careful about that. We, as Christians, can look up to people who stand completely against our values and will openly influence people against our values. But we're just like, man, that guy can play basketball. And he played in Cleveland. <laughs> or whatever town... So I like him. Hey, there's no merit in poverty or wealth, God's saying. Kingdom people follow Jesus whether they're rich or they're poor. Why reject favoritism? It's inconsistent. Inconsistent with God's character. It's inconsistent with how we want to be treated. Look at the next verse, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And that royal law, Jesus summed up as love God first, love people second. 
And then James here is giving us what we call the golden rule, which is that second law of the greatest two commandments that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's basically, this is just saying, Jesus is saying it, James is saying it, don't prejudge people based on external factors. And even when you're considering their actions, which is a better way to figure out where people are. And, and by the way, we have to make judgments all the time. But when we're figuring out where there are and by considering their actions, we also need to remember that people change. Just like we as believers have all changed. We need to allow that for other people as well. And then he says, hey, it also you know, it's inconsistent because it seriously violates God's law. Look at verse 9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For, I said that kind of weird. Transgressors, all right. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. And here's the whole thing where we think, well, yeah, I know, technically, I've read the Bible, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm not a sinner like that guy. I mean, that guy, I, I'm a sinner. That guy's a sinner. You know, and we make these distinctions. And here James is pointing out something again Jesus has already pointed out to us, which is if we break any point of the law, we've broken the whole law. If you break any of the Ten Commandments, you've broken the first commandment automatically. It's like the way we look at it, or we tend to look at it, is we pick up a hammer and, and we... We just put one hole in the window pane and we think, well, we haven't really broken the window. Just this one spot. Or it's like a chain. It's like we're desperately hanging on to this chain called the law to keep us and we're dangling over the fires of hell. Probably truer than we think. But I broke just one point. Oh, just one link was broken in the chain. Yeah, well, that breaks the whole chain. James is telling us, if you commit partiality, if you commit favoritism, you've broken the whole law. It's not like God winks at this part and you're, you're good with everything else. You've broken it all. That's what he's saying. If we reject favoritism and then we remember why, what's next? Well, next for James is the fact that we need to replace favoritism with mercy. Last point, that we replace favoritism with mercy. Look at verse, um, look at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are, be, who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, first of all, what's he talking about? When he uses the word mercy here, what he's saying is showing pity or compassion on somebody who's hurting or needy. But this pity and com compassion is more than emotion. It translates into us trying to do something that helps this person who's in need. That's, that's showing mercy. 
doing something for somebody else, whether they deserve it or not, doing something to help them. So Christianity thrives because it's the good news that God offers mercy to us, help, compassion to us, even though we don't deserve it. When we get that, when people understand that, that's where they embrace Christianity, and Christianity thrives at that point. But when we receive that kind of mercy, this is the whole point of James, when we receive that kind of unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, when we get that from God and we realize that God has forgiven us, saved us, that we will be with him in eternity, and it's not because we're great people. It's because God is a great God and he has great mercy and he's offered us through faith and we took him up on it. We cried out to him for salvation. When we have done that, James is saying, well then we will be people who will also show mercy. Because God who's given us infinite mercy is telling us to be merciful. So in gratitude of what God's given us, we will show mercy that's even counter to our human nature. That's what he's saying. It's like this at Grace. We, we gather together as God wants us to, and we learn more and more about Jesus. And then the more we learn about Jesus, the more we love Jesus. And then the more we love Jesus, the more we obey him and live that way. That doesn't earn us Christianity, it's just how we respond. And then the more we obey and reflect on Jesus, and then we learn more about Jesus, and then we love Jesus even more. And then when we love him even more, we obey him more. We, we do his word more and more as we love Jesus more and more. Our Christian life should never be static. It should always be moving closer and closer to him. Favoritism. It happens in the world. But favoritism cannot happen here. Not here. Not in God's house. Not with God's people. It cannot happen. Because we've been changed. Let's stand together. We'll pray and our team's going to come out and close us out. Father God, we are reminded of your great mercy and your love for us, which we do not deserve. But Lord, somehow you allowed us to see it. You allowed us to respond, to cry out to you, to ask for forgiveness based on what your son Jesus did for us. And Father, we thank you for that greatest gift. And, and God, if there's anybody here that, that is not sure where they stand before you, we pray that you'd help them figure that out. Maybe stop by room one, ask questions, whatever they need to do that. But God, for the rest of us, help us every day to learn more about you, which will cause us just knowing you better, will cause us to love you more, and it will cause us to want to follow you more closely. Lord, thank you. In Christ's name, amen.